here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Welcome, everyone. My name is Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. So today we have a special topic. We are talking about the Koch brothers and the evil right-wing empire that up until recently, I don't think we've had to deal with actually that much in the Medicare for All movement, but there's been some recent sort of troubling developments. We've been keeping an eye on an anti-Medicare for All bill in the Florida state legislature that is kind of working its way, especially through the Florida state Senate. And if this was passed, it would require a two-thirds supermajority to ever pass Medicare for All through the Florida state legislature. The idea is that it's a preemptive strike against Medicare for All. They would put this in place and it would make it much, much harder to ever pass Medicare for All through the state legislature in Florida. To even the playing field for the insurers, you know. Exactly. They need all the help they can get. And we we believe that, you know, Americans for Prosperity nationally may be behind this and they may be looking at this as a strategy to push through other, uh, you know, Republican controlled state legislatures around the country. But we're going to have a broader conversation about kind of right wing opposition to Medicare for all and the strategy that the right is taking to this as well. And we've brought on a guest (laughs) to help us out with this discussion. So we have Ben Palmquist here. He is the program director for healthcare and economic democracy at Partners for Dignity and Rights, formerly known as Nesri. And he joins not only the podcast, but the list of guests whose title is way too long. Welcome, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. So let's just first talk about this this Florida bill, which is in the Florida State Senate. And it has actually has passed favorably through three of the four committees that it needs to get to the floor. What has this debate in the Florida state legislature look like? So the bill itself has been mentioned is basically to require, basically prevent future legislators that are elected by the Florida public from being able to pass a bill for single payer and requiring this two thirds vote. It would actually amend the state constitution to do that, to really lock it in. And it looks like the bill is being sponsored by Diaz, who's the chair of the health committee. And it certainly seems to be with backing from Americans for Prosperity, part of the Koch brothers network. And he introduced it in the health committee. It passed by majority through there with the one person speaking from outside speaking in, in favor of the bill was a staff person from Americans for Prosperity. And it then moved on to the How did they find committee. out about it when no one else knew it was going through? It's <laughs> Good a mystery. question. My guess, mm-hmm. my guess is this is not a coincidence that there was some some planning and collaboration going on. And so, so then it went to the appropriations committee. It ended up passing there too. And it sounds like you know there wasn't a ton of debate about it. I mean, the the bill itself is only a page long, really, but. It seemed like the Democrats were pretty skeptical about what sort of shenanigans are tr- <laughs> Republicans are trying to pull when there's not even a single payer bill being introduced. And what I assume is pretty close to a party line vote. It passed the Appropriations Committee as well. Hmm. Yeah, well, good thing they're trying to put this in the Constitution, because that's where basic <laughs> rights uh, go. 
like the right to never be given universal health care, really core fundamental right that's close to American values. So, and, you know, I think some of this is probably, you know, the Sunbelt in particular is gradually turning purple and starting to turn blue. And that's having this long-term impact on, on our uh, national elections, certainly. But this is also, also could be something that they're starting to look at, you know, in terms of state legislatures to taking some preemptive action. You know, as we're kind of growing momentum and actually, you know, our episode two weeks ago with New York, we heard about the realities of single payer, like right wing opposition group in New York. We kind of mocked them a little bit, but we shouldn't take the right opposition totally for granted or dismiss it. So, Ben, what what's the broader picture in terms of other groups, you know, that have been formed to to oppose Medicare for all outside of, you know, Americans for Prosperity. We're starting to see them get into the game here. Yeah. So there is certainly this assault on democracy that Americans for Prosperity is part of the Koch Brothers Network. Mm -hmm. There's also the American Legislative Exchange, ALEC, and the state what are they called? SPN, the State Policy Network or something like that. They really work behind the scenes in a way that's largely invisible, sort of organizing state legislators, handing them model legislation and pushing it. And I think are, are behind a lot of the attacks on voting rights in Florida, but also Georgia and Texas and other places people have been hearing. And in terms of healthcare, there is the healthcare industries are highly organized in opposing any and all efforts for certainly for single payer, but even for just public options or expansions of Medicare and and that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's interesting because the insurance industry structurally is sort of an enemy of hospitals and drug companies, right? Because they're bargaining against each other over prices. But in recent years, they've really all teamed up in some of these associations, like the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future is the big national industry coalition opposing Medicare for all. Like you mentioned, realities of single payers. Sometimes there's these state groups when Colorado had its ballot initiative for single payer, there, a, a group popped up, you know, won that fight and then disappeared. <laughs> and then there's this affordable coverage coalition is another sort of configuration that's bringing together the insurance industry, hospital hmm. industry and employers and doctors and the professional associations. And they seem to be taking a slightly different tack of saying, oh, we're just supporting employer-sponsored insurance, but it's all really an, an attack on sort of any shift from privatized healthcare towards treating healthcare as a human right and public good. Yeah. I liked how you mentioned that these are industries that really shouldn't be working together. <laughs> I mean, they are kind of natural competitors in the market. I remember there was a huge Boston Globe report on Massachusetts that came out. It was like a, a decade ago. And they were looking into why healthcare costs were so extraordinarily high in Massachusetts. And I mean, aside from the fact that we have a multi-payer system, they found out that basically the biggest insurer in the state, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and the biggest hospital chain in the state, Partners, had come to an explicit backroom deal that they would just, hospitals would raise their prices high and pass on the cost to the insurance company and the insurance company would pass on the cost to employers and to patients. And they just said, well, we can both prosper if we don't fight each other on this. And the fact that they're now all working together in the political realm tells me the same thing is kind of going on here. 
It's like, let's all just gouge everyone else and, you know, prosper together while we drive everyone's costs up astronomically. (laughs) Yeah. And also another reason why it's so important that the doctors are organized against this. We can't have all of these groups banded together against Medicare for all. I mean, we have to split the opposition a little bit (laughs) there. So zooming out just one more level from the opposition against Medicare for all and all these new groups that are, are cropping up, there's sort of an even more problematic aspect of this bill, which would require a two-thirds majority vote on single payer for it to pass, which of course is that it's like totally undemocratic. You know, I mean, it seems like they're holding nothing else to that standard. They're just singling out Medicare for all and saying, if you want this, then you have to get like this supermajority. So how is this proposal part of a larger attack that's happening on democracy by the right? Yeah, so there's a long, this falls into a long set of strategies that right wing has been using. So I live in California and, you know, you may know the tax revolt really started out here with Grover Norquist and Ronald Reagan and others in the 70s. And they managed to pass, it was passed by a ballot initiative, something called Prop 13, which is still state law. And it requires any tax hikes to basically have a two thirds support in the legislature, which makes it extremely hard to raise new revenue. And it's decimated things like public education because it's just just wiped the the tax base out by locking in property taxes. And so it's been really terrible, but they, you know, having tested and, <laughs> and had success with that strategy, they've, of course, used in a lot of other states over the years. And, you know, I mentioned this sort of across states, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, and other places, there's this systematic attack on voting rights right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think what this, what this bill is proposing to do is really saying that even if the people of Florida want to elect legislatures and to enact single payer, we are going to preemptively put in place a constitutional amendment (laughs) that will prohibit the will of the people from being enacted. It's totally preposterous. So in order to pass, this would have to be passed by 60% of voters in a ballot initiative. I'm skeptical Florida voters would actually do that. But I think we should still take this very seriously. Yeah, you get one democracy for Medicare for all and then a different democracy for every piece of legislation (laughs) in the Florida legislature. I mean, when Stephanie was saying, you know, this would impose a supermajority and it's undemocratic, I was thinking, well, it's only 6% less democratic than the filibuster, where you need 60% to pass things through the Senate. But, you know, at least the California tax revolt measure and the filibuster, which are both undemocratic, are equitably undemocratic across most things. Although I guess, you know, targeting new taxes is a form of, it's not quite as like micro-targeted as this, like you can't do Medicare for all, but it is, you know, it's the reason that California basically gets destroyed during every recession. They just start swimming in debt and they can't manage like most other states can. So it really is, it bodes very poorly. There's like new and new new creative ways to undermine democracy being proliferated around the country every month, it feels like. Yeah, there, it definitely seems like they're thinking multiple steps ahead. I mean, there's not a single payer bill in Florida. Why are they doing this? I think you were sort of saying, Ben, that you know it's a swing state that's up for grabs. And, and it does seem like they're potentially putting this out as a test run that they would then try to replicate in other states. So I think even for folks who aren't in Florida, this is really something to pay attention to. Yeah. And if we start seeing this pop up in other states, then we really have to pay attention because, you know, all the attacks on voting rights that have been happening in Georgia, you know, Arizona, Texas, those have all been centrally coordinated. These same right wing think tanks are like trying to come up with the model legislation that is most likely to survive legal challenge. So the same thing could 
be happening here with Medicare for All, which we should keep an eye on. So I, I wanted to ask you about an area of your work, Ben, that kind of overlaps with this, which is the decades long campaign by the health insurance industry and the right to kind of reframe the debate over Medicare for All in the press. And they have been actually extraordinarily successful to the point that, you know, I think based on the work you've done, it seems like most mainstream media today use the framing that they've been given <laughs> by the insurance industry and by the right uh, when they're talking about Medicare for all and healthcare in general. And it's really detrimental and, and dangerous, not just for the Medicare for all movement, but I'd say even for, you know, very incremental stuff like the public option or the Affordable Care Act, things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your findings there? Yeah. So the gist of the framing that's become so mainstream that's really harmful is talking about any form of public insurance, Medicare for all, public option, whatever, as government-run healthcare, government-run insurance. And then on the flip side, though, rather than talking about corporate-run insurance, insurance company-run healthcare, you know, just saying, oh, private insurance, your insurance. So it sets up this, on the one side, you sort of invoke the government as the boogeyman, right, that's dominating your life and getting between you and your doctor. And then on the other time, you're just totally erasing these corporate profiteers from the picture and just naturalizing the healthcare system. And so this, of course, is all built on this decades-long campaign, not just about healthcare, but this attack on government, right, that was really, I think, corporate reaction to the New Deal and the consumer rights movement. It was a racist reaction to the civil rights and Black power movement. It was a sexist reaction to the women's movement and youth movements and LGBT movements. And, and so just this conservative coalition really seems to have found common cause in attacking government. And now the term government sort of invokes all these unpleasant images in people's head. And so, you know, do you want Joe Biden running your health care or something, I think, is what, is what people hear when they hear that kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I know that this is something you see government funded and government run healthcare, not just from Fox News and conservative papers, but you see it in the New York Times, you see it in NPR. It is perfectly common to use that. And it, I think it's actually rather unusual not to use it and to use fair framing. And I know that you have actually talked with some journalists and, and tried to have conversations about the use of this in their writing. And, you know, I know you probably don't want to name any names, but can you tell us a little bit about how those conversations have gone? Yeah, so I, I reached out to a whole bunch of journalists and editors and actually pollsters too, because this same language shows up in public opinion polls. And I would say overwhelmingly, I was met with non-responses. And, and so many of the people <laughs> who did respond were just sort of confused or actually rather defensive. And I tried, I was anticipating that. So I was trying to be very gentle and not assign personal blame and just say, hey, I wanted to let you know about this. There were a few people who were interested and I had got to have some conversations with a couple editors and a couple journalists. And so, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to build those relationships with people who are a little more maybe open to, to critically mm. rethinking sort of the standard narratives that have emerged. But I think for us as advocates, you know, we can sort of continue to in a way that's not personally attacking the journalist, but sort of call out the specific language that's used when it's problematic, I think is helpful. And the other thing we can do, because what, what this language does is it erases the profiteers, is like continually try to write the insurance companies, mm. the drug companies, the hospital companies into the story. Right. And basically all you're asking here is that they use 
fair language, like compare private insurance to public insurance or compare mm-hmm. corporate run to government run insurance instead of comparing this very neutral sounding private insurance with government run insurance. And that might sound like a subtle distinction to people, but my understanding is that this has all been focus grouped and polled by the healthcare industry. And they know that the most favorable way for them to talk about Medicare for all, that people will oppose it more, is to ask, would you rather have private insurance or government run insurance? And that that's the framing that is least favorable to anything like Medicare for all or public insurance. Yeah. And I think that even in countries, you know, with generous welfare states like where I am right now in in Denmark, there is different language around the entity that provides societal benefits like healthcare and transportation and everything that (laughs) is provided by our, our tax money and sort of like the government as a separate thing, right? And so there's actually a word we say samfun or society is what funds the National Health Service in Denmark, for example. And so I do think that this kind of language does matter at the end of the day, even for places that already have Medicare for all or National Health Insurance. Yeah. And anyone who thinks it's a subtle language difference, imagine if someone referred to you to a government run school as opposed to just like a public, you know, a public K through 12 school. Right. We would never, ever use the phrase, you know, a charter school is private, but a public school is government run. There's a not subtle difference. Um, and it's it becomes strange as soon as you'd start talking about a system that has widespread support that is publicly run and publicly financed. So yeah, I think I think this is going to be important for our long long-term success to start at least co- correcting the media bias on on this. Yeah, I think a, a few more examples uh, like public libraries, public parks, public radio, you know, if you think of those sound quite different than government-run parks, mm-hmm. government-run libraries, government-run radio, right? It just has a very so. <laughs> right. When I hear yeah. a government-run park, I think of that park in Berlin that has all those like a hundred-foot statues of Lenin and stuff right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think of something completely different than a public park, you know. So it is tricky because, of course, we do want to affirm that government is an important part of our lives and should be right. That and should be in the healthcare system in particular. But I think that just the term government alone, we have to recognize it has these various connotations that it carries with it. So I think we need to be yeah, careful on the language we're choosing and then and, and sort of invoking a sort of government, like this is, it should be our government, yeah. right? Like we need to reclaim it and sort of write ourselves into that right. story. <laughs> okay, what do y'all think of this idea as for a campaign? Like what if we, you know, got a letter or like a petition and it was signed by, you know, a couple lefty news outlets that committed to not using government funded healthcare and they're- I'm in. <laughs> and start with that and then start circulating that and asking like more and more newspapers and media outlets to stop using that terminology. We'd start very small. <laughs> I would like to do it. I think that we need to first figure out which editors we can actually get mm-hmm. in on that. And then I think it could snowball if we were able to do that. Start with common dreams. <laughs> actually, if we want true balance, then the left-wing publications should actually refer only to corporate-run insurance and public insurance. <laughs> and then they'll offset the right-wing yes, framing. Exactly. And then these big you know, so-called <laughs> neutral ones can use the balanced uh, yes. language if they want. I think we should exclusively refer to, to corporate-run insurance and public yes. insurance. <laughs> Death panel <laughs> Insurance. I mean, <laughs> all right, where were we in this conversation? <laughs> Let's see. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you, Ben, you know, if it wasn't bad enough to have the press eating up these industry talking points and using them, we also have our liberal think tanks churning out material for them, right? So 
when Bernie, especially during his second run, when Medicare for All was just like on the table in a way that they couldn't like keep it off the table. You know, I started noticing like a lot of articles popping up about how, oh, look, like Switzerland has private health insurance system and they have universal health care and the Netherlands is the same thing. And Germany doesn't have a Medicare for all system and all this stuff. And I was like, this is like obviously a coordinated effort. And when I started looking into it more, it was actually the Commonwealth Fund that was funding all of this, all of these newspapers to write these pieces. Vox did a whole four-part series on healthcare around the world, which was clearly to sort of like hammer home this proposal that, you know, Medicare for all is only one way of getting a universal healthcare system and actually lots of European countries do it differently. And so, I don't know, I, I think maybe you've seen some examples of that as well. And I'd love to hear where you've seen that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the, I think first, the absence of any real attention to single payer for so many years is sort of very telling <laughs> from these think tanks, right? That it was just yeah. not even on the table. Like they, you know, they deemed it not worthy of even policy consideration from these supposedly very thorough policy institutes. But yeah, mm -hmm. there's definitely now this this systematic effort that I do think is driven in large part by philanthropy, trying to steer towards, yes, Switzerland, Singapore, these other models that have more significant private insurance. But of course, they very often downplay the fact that, oh, well, maybe most of the hospitals in Singapore are actually public hospitals and there's public price setting and it's totally different. And in Germany, workers have enormous amounts of power. They actually sit on corporate boards and are sort of governing whole economic sectors. You know, there's this willful ignoring of how power actually operates in society, I think. And it is, it is very problematic. I mean, it's telling to me that I think really the organizations that are fighting so clearly for Medicare for All are overwhelmingly member funded, right, by both unions and single payer advocacy groups and others who are not relying on certainly not corporate donations, but not even private philanthropies. I think it's really it's everyday people who are stepping up and being like, no, this is the healthcare system we need and we are going to fight for it. Yeah, there are very few paid Medicare for all advocates in the United States. And that is actually a big part of the reason why is that there's a lot of things that can be funded <laughs> through these large philanthropic organizations and Medicare for all is really just not one of them. It's actually really strange, I think, that there's massive amount of progressive foundation funding for housing advocacy, housing rights, for a whole range of kind of our social ills, but there's basically almost close to zero foundation funding in the United States for Medicare for all related mm. work for, you know, winning a stat, winning healthcare as a human right. So it does, well, it keeps us honest, not having foundation dollars. Sometimes that can come with strings attached and can be problematic, but I think almost all the foundations that are throwing money at the healthcare world and healthcare reform are funded by the healthcare industry. So, you know, this is Kaiser Family Foundation, a bunch of others. Mm. So they they have their, you know, they are really constrained in what they can give to. And there is almost no progressive funding of the Medicare for All movement through the philanthropic world. And I think that that has to change, I think, at some point. And I'm not entirely sure why it is. Yeah, I think in some cases, there are direct ties to corporations. Um, but I think even when they're not, it seems to me that there's this ideological commitment and this class solidarity mm -hmm. that just is, it's sort of understood that the boards of these foundations are fundamentally capitalists. And in that for staff at the foundations, for their grantees, everyone just sort of knows that there's certain lines you don't cross, certain things you don't talk about and supporting Medicare for all, unfortunately. So very often seems to be one of them. We've got to make ourselves mainstream. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this because when we were going through the data for our patients over profits tracker, which shows you 
which reps are taking industry money, you know, it has, it sort of filters out like all of the donations that a rep is receiving. So you can see which industries are actually giving over a certain amount of dollars. I think it's like $2,000. And what I found was that, yes, of course, like industry is giving tons of cash to legislators, but actually another really and maybe even comparable or even greater source of, of significant cash donations are individuals who are just very wealthy in the district who are investors or real estate developers or whatever. And even if we took out all of the industry money, which we need to do anyway, but even if we did all of that, we would still have this class issue of, you know, very powerful, wealthy people funding the campaigns of all of our legislators. And I think that that's sort of a separate and fun issue that we'll have to <laughs> deal with at some point. Yeah. So maybe as we close, we should shift from the, the huge, massive national picture back down to the Florida picture and just tell folks what they can do to stop this Florida measure. So the bill has gone through almost all the, the committees of jurisdiction in the Senate that it would need to pass, but it is now in the Rules Committee, and that's kind of like the last one it would have to get out of. So if you live in Florida, if you know anyone in Florida, encourage them to contact the members, the chair of the Rules Committee, or if you live in one of the districts of, one, of a member, of a senator who sits on the Rules Committee, contact them and urge them to vote against it. Fortunately, is not yet started moving through the House, so it's possible that this will not end up if it goes through the full state legislature, it would end up on the ballot like Ben was talking about. And we'd have a, a full, you know, in the next election cycle, a full vote of the population on this. And then we'd have a real fight on our hands. We'd have to do a major mobilization effort in Florida. But for now, I would oppose this in the Senate. And if it starts moving at all in the House side, we, we're going to have to fight that. So we'll put a link in the show notes about where you can find the members of the Florida Senate Rules Committee. Yep. Yep. And we'll, if you're on our email list and you live in Florida, then we will send you this action. So look out for that or get on our email list. Yeah. If you're not on our email list, what the hell is wrong with you? Hurry up. <laughs> Go to healthcare.org. <laughs> it's like the whole reason we're doing this podcast. And then yep. finally, Ben, what can we do as, as individuals to push back against right-wing talking points? I think one of the most powerful things we can do is tell our, our personal healthcare stories, right? It's a great way to humanize what healthcare is really about and to connect up with each other. And so, you know, I know on the podcast with the folks from the Campaign for New York Health, you talked about this sort of story-based way of organizing. And I, so I think it telling our stories, but connecting that up with actual sort of organizing new people into our movement, people who are directly impacted by healthcare is a really, one really powerful way to just start shifting the conversation, right? To change what the media is paying attention to, what politicians are having to respond to. And I think another thing we can do is really call out profiteers, right? When drug companies are jacking up prices, when hospitals are charging insane bills, when insurance companies are denying claims or denying coverage, really sort of politicize that and make that more visible. And on the, on the flip side, then really sort of, you know, affirming that we all need healthcare, right? We all have medical needs. We need a healthcare system that works for all of us. And the way we're going to win that is by working together and having the government guarantee that right. And so, again, going back to the language stuff, we could sort of very specifically, you know, rather than talking about government-run insurance or letting journalists do that, make sure that we're talking about Medicare for all and public insurance and public health programs. And again, just like really hammering away on those profiteers who are screwing us over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if also if you have a local newspaper or 
TV station, radio station that's using this framing of private versus government run, you should ask to meet with their editor or, you know, their producer and just point out to them the bias in the language they're using. So some of the stuff that Ben Palmquist is doing with national outlets, you can organize at the local level, I think, and be very effective. And you'll probably more likely to get an audience than we are with these giant institutions that have massive bureaucracies to get through to their editors. So. <laughs> yeah, and to help folks with that, we have, there's a report on our website. If you go to parodingtheright.org, it'll link you there. And yeah. at the bottom, there's a recommendation section for journalists and editors that has very specific language advice on how to be balanced and not biased. And so that, that's a helpful tool in those efforts. Perfect. Take those talking points with you. All right. Well, thank you, Ben, so much for joining us today. This is Ben Palmquist. The podcast manager for this episode was Sarah Sang. Our writer was Jerry Katz. And our audio editor was Cheryl Levy. Thank you to the new Medicare for All podcast team who's helping us produce this. It used to be Stephanie and I doing everything. So this has really been a game changer. So you hope you can tell the difference in the quality of the podcast these last couple of episodes. Yes. And we will talk to you all in two weeks. Take care. Bye.